All right, good morning. Good to be with you once again. And if you're visiting, really glad that you're here. We are going to be in Psalm 27 today. Um, one, of the, one of the features of the Psalms, and especially the Psalms that David writes, David writes a lot of Psalms, is that they tend to be all over the place emotionally. Um, so in the same Psalm, he'll say something like, you know, God, you're amazing. Uh, my, my love for you is like a flower, something like that. Um, and then a little later in the same Psalm, he'll say, please slaughter my enemies and water the fields with their blood. And then he'll say something like, you know, I'm a worm and I deserve nothing, uh, which is very reformed of him. I don't know if you guys know anyone who's like super reformed in their theology, someone with like a Martin Luther tattoo strangling a snake, but very reformed people are very hard to compliment. Like you can just talk to your very reformed friend and be like, hey, you did a great job on that. And they go, only God is great. I am, I'm, I'm an ant, I'm nothing. And then you go, good talk. Uh, the, the Psalms is where those very reformed people get a lot of that because they, they get into the poetic language of uh, you know some of the things that David says. I'm, I'm less than a worm. Um, and also, by the way, if that's you, if you are the super reformed person, you could chill like a little bit, <laughs> you know, like, like good for you and your theology, but like if someone compliments, you can just say thank you for encouraging me. Like that's all you have to say. And you know, if you have a cool tattoo, show me later. Um, anyways, I really love this about the Psalms that they are kind of like all over the place emotionally, even though it feels a bit like whiplash reading it and you're like, how did he get from there to, you're like, I don't really know how that works. Um, but I, I love that we see it because one, it comes across as very honest. Um, it, it, it's true to real life experience where we in our own thoughts will be all over the place in, in some of the, the various uh, life circumstances we find ourselves in. And that's Psalm 27. It's very realistic about uh, where your thoughts can go. And in, uh, in, in Psalm 27, not a, not a great situation. Uh, the first half of Psalm 27 is like full of light. It's very uh, positive. There's, there's a lot of inner peace and confidence in God, and that's, that's really great. But then in the second half, it starts to get a little bit dark, and you see some of the anxiety and fear and doubt where your mind can wander. Uh, and then in the end, the final two verses, it ends up in a really good spot, right? It moves through that darkness and still ends up in a good place. And so really helpful for us to look at and see kind of these various stages. Uh, wh where does this inner peace and this confidence come from? How can I have that same level of confidence that we find in David? Um, how do we deal with the anxieties and the fears and the doubts? Like, where, how can I understand those things better? And, and how can I move through those things like David to come to a good place uh, at, at the end of it in spite of those, those fears and those anxieties and those doubts? And so here we go. Psalm 27, verse 1 says this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes? It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. For, uh, for some of the Psalms we get um, in the, the description of it, uh, the specific circumstances in which David or whatever author is writing it, that's not the case here. Um, we don't know what part of his life David is in when he's writing this, but the weird thing is it could be many. Like he often finds himself in this situation where things are not going well for him. Like externally and just objectively, you can look at what's happening in his life and things are not going well. He talks about when evildoers assail me to eat my flesh. Uh, he's got adversaries and foes, enemies all around him. This, this could be several times in his life and it just kind of happens again and again. Betrayal by people who are close to him and, uh, and, and enemies rising up and people plotting to destroy him. Um, and David is doing what lots of people do when they find themselves in the middle of a crisis he's turning to God. When, when things are going south, he is turning himself to God. Even people who don't follow Jesus and, and maybe don't have an interest in God through most of the times in their lives, uh, there, there are still moments, and, and maybe that's you, and, and maybe you're aware of those moments where you did turn to God and cry out to him and just say, God, if you're there, I need you to help me. If you're there, I want you to show up. I, I, I can't do this on my own right, when your head is kind of going under the waves. And for some people, and actually not a small number of people, that's their testimony. Like, that's the beginning of their testimony where they, they finally turn to God because they didn't have anything else to turn to. Like, there's nothing else they could put their hope in, and, and so they finally put their hope in God, and that began something for them, right? Began their relationship with God and their journey of faith, and it was a, a, a turning point in their lives. And you know, praise God in his mercy. He did show up for them, and, and they, they encountered this beautiful relationship they can have with him. Um, I will say, although it's not a bad thing to turn to God in the middle of crisis, if that's the only time you ever turn to him, you are robbing yourself of so much of the peace that you could have in your life, and so much of the security you could have access to if you were spending the times of peace in better preparation. I'll say it like that. Um, you could think of it like health, where if you're in general good health today, there are things you could do every day, just little good decisions you could make that would keep you in fairly good health. And like nothing's a guarantee. There are some things outside of your control. You could be, you could be injured or have some genetic thing happen or, you know, there are things out, but the things that are inside of your control, you could keep yourself in general good health. If you wait until you're on like the verge of a medical catastrophe, it's kind of too late to have been doing the things you've been doing all along. Like you could start doing them now, and it's not a bad thing to start doing them now, but you're just kind of robbing yourself of the, the peace and the security you might have had if you'd been making those, those better decisions to that point. Uh, or like swimming. When you you want to learn to swim in like not adverse conditions, like there's a shallow end of the pool and there's someone there who can teach you. You don't want to learn to swim when you're thrown off the boat in the middle of the ocean, um, sink, sink or swim time. 
David's circumstances are bad. And like when, when we read the things that he's writing here, there's like slight exaggeration, like they want to eat my flesh. But in general, he's not speaking in metaphor. Like this is literal. There are enemies who want to destroy him, who want to kill him, who want to end his life. And you might be here today and like you're going through something right now in your life that is just awful and hugely stressful and super overwhelming. And I don't want to be dismissive about that at all. Um, but most of us are not facing the same level of catastrophe as David, where there's like an army that's trying to take your life, you know? David's in the thick of it, and yet, in the midst of this huge amount of stress and these overwhelming uh, circumstances, look at how unwavering his confidence in God is. He says, my heart won't fear. I will be confident. My enemies are the ones who are going to stumble. In verse 6, he's already planning the, the victory celebration for when God comes through for him and delivers him out of this mess. He's already picturing it. He already knows it's going to happen. It's like a done deal. How is David able to be so calm? Because that's not what most of us do. That's not how most of us are when you know, it feels like the, the world is kind of turning against you and you don't see a way out for yourself. The, this is not the description of our mental state when you're in the middle of that. Uh, I think part of the problem for us is, and this is something everyone does, where we tend to get tunnel vision. Uh, we tend to focus on the, the problem or the situation or the thing that's right in front of us, and it's, it's so close to us, we can't see anything else. We can't look at anything else or think about anything else. We just look at what's right in front of us. And it's kind of like, like how we get the phrase, you make a mountain out of a molehill. You can end up making the problem much bigger than it actually is when it's the only thing you're focusing on. It's occupying all of your attention. Your eyes are fixed on it and on nowhere else. It just grows and grows and grows until you, you, you can't see anything other than that. And at the same time, the opposite can also happen where you can make a molehill out of a mountain in your life. You might have this big, great, awesome thing in your life that's very relevant to you and can be a great help to you, and yet because you're not looking at it, you're not thinking about it or focusing on it, you can take this giant, great thing in your life and, and basically diminish it to, to nothing or makes no discernible difference in your life because you're not turning to it, you're not thinking about it, you're not focusing on it at all. Was this bad habit and you, you don't have to get stuck in it, but where you, you make some things much bigger than they are and other things much smaller than they really are. And that might be why you don't find yourself having confidence and peace like David has confidence and peace. You could be making your problems bigger than they are and at the same time making your God so much smaller than he is so that you don't, you don't see a way out. And it's simply because of where you're focusing your mind and your attention. The first half of this psalm here, everything we just read, I think this is one of the best uh, demonstrations of the truth that we find in, green screen, Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31, and David is just like demonstrating this mindset. Uh, Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? 
if you understand what this verse is teaching and, and you kind of get in, this, in the zone where, where you understand this truth and it, it becomes the reality for you, you can easily get into David's mindset. Like, who cares if there's armies out to get me, right? Who, who cares? Like, what does it matter if there are people who hate me? What does it matter if, if I'm sick? What does it matter if the economy is on the brink of collapse? Or, you know, what does it matter if there's instability and war with Russia and Ukraine and, you know, there's China and who knows what's going on over there and there's a, a pandemic, there's all these things. But what, what does it matter? What can those things really do to me? If God is for me, what can those things do to me? God who is the creator, God who's the king, God who's sovereign over all of creation, who's working out his plan from beginning to end. If he's for me, whatever it is that happens to me, whatever it is that's happening in my life, it can't destroy the purpose that he has for me. It can't destroy his plan. It can't destroy the promises that he's given me and where he's bringing me to. Even death. Jesus resurrects from the grave and defeats death so that in Jesus, death cannot take away from you. It can only bring you closer to Jesus. It can only bring you closer to, 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 to the one who loves you more than anything. What is there to fear in death? That's the kind of inner peace David has when it seems like the world is turning against him, it's all rising against him, it's out of his control and out of his ability to deal with. His mind is focused on the truth that he knows about God. If he's for me, who could be against me? His plan is going to be accomplished. His purpose is going to stand. It makes me think about that line from the song, uh, turn your eyes to Jesus, look full on his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What do you do? Where does your mind go when you are facing problems in your life that feel like they're too big for you to handle, they're too much for you to deal with, you're overwhelmed by them, where do you look? Where does your mind go? Where do you focus your attention? How is David able to have this level of confidence and inner peace where uh, if, if God is for me, who can be against me? How does he get it? H how do we get it? I see four reasons for how David is able to get there and, and honestly how each of us can also get there. So the first reason is David knows how to turn to God. He knows how to turn to God. That's where his attention is already focused on the reality of God. And that's what, what God is for David. He's part of his reality for how he understands everything, how he understands himself, how he understands the world and his own life. Everything is seen in the light of who he is. And that's the first verse. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Like for David, God is not uh, like a Hail Mary, shot in the dark, last resort kind of thing that I need to turn to. He's an ever-present part of his understanding of everything. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. David sees everything in God's light, in light of the reality of who God is. He sees himself in the light of the reality of who God is. He sees his life and his purpose in light of the reality of who God is. He sees his enemies and his circumstances in the light of the reality of God. David knows how to see God. He knows how to see himself in light of God in his circumstances, in light of God. That's reason number one. Reason number two, well, how is he able to do that? David is able to, uh, to, to turn to God so easily. Reason number two, because he does not only turn to God in the midst of crisis, but he has made knowing God and pursuing God the, the great goal of his life. Uh, and this is verse four. So go, go to verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is what David wants. This is his desire that, you know, when he's delivered from his enemies, the thing that he wants to get back to is spending time in God's presence and gazing on his beauty. The, uh, the Westminster Catechism, for all my Reformed folks out there, is, uh, is pretty well known. It, it's very influential in church history. It has a great place in the history of the church and the development of the church uh, through history. And a catechism is an instructional method that uses question and answer. So it teaches you something by asking a question, giving you the answer, and then helping you to work through how you got to that answer. The first question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Like, what is the purpose of human beings? What is it that God has made us for? And the answer Westminster Catechism gives is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we're not meant to, and, and you may have been raised in a way where you've been given this understanding of what a relationship with God is like that is sort of transactional, and cold, but we're not meant to have a business relationship with God where we give him the things he demands of us, you know, you, you go to church, you follow his rules, you read the Bible, you give, you serve, you do all those things, and he gives you in exchange for that the things that you really want, and he, he blesses your life, and he, you know, keeps you from going to hell, and all those things. Uh, we're not meant to have this business relationship, transactional relationship with God where uh, through the relationship, you're able to acquire the stuff that you really care about, the stuff that you really love. We we're meant to have a relationship with God that is mutually loving, where He is the thing that you treasure. He is the thing that, that you love, where you find God to be so worthy and so beautiful and so good you want nothing more in your life than simply to get closer to him. Third reason David has so much confidence and peace in the middle of all of this is because God has proven himself faithful to David time and time again. As I said in the beginning, uh, this kind of general description of these circumstances could fit a bunch of times in David's life, and that's because God again and again delivers him. 
and is faithful to show up, is faithful to deliver him from the, the stuff that he's going through. Uh, part of that for David has to do with the specific promise David's been given, where God told him, I'm gonna make you king of Israel, I'm gonna establish your house, uh, even you know, through your line, the Messiah eventually is going to be born, um, the, the king who will have an eternal kingdom. And so David gets these specific promises and then he sees God faithful again and again, even when it looks like, how could God possibly make good on this promise? How could he possibly establish my house? I'm about to die. Once again, he is rescued and delivered and God shows himself to be faithful. We don't have the specific promise that David's been given, but in Jesus, you actually get much better promises. In Jesus, you get promises that you will be forgiven, that you are loved, that he'll never abandon you or forsake you, that you're given the gift of eternal life. And when you look back over your own life, what you'll find is evidence of how God has shown up for you in the past, how God has delivered you in the past. God's been good to you in the past. He's been good to you before. He's, he's still good now. He's brought you through everything in your life to where you are today because he cares about you. He loves you. Reason number four, David has this confidence and this peace. And th this, is, uh, this is more um, almost taken for granted, but it's, it's easy to ignore the truth about it that David knows nothing is outside of God's capability. He knows nothing is too hard for him. And, and nothing stretches outside of his, his sovereign control and his plan. So like whatever it is that's happening in your life, whatever's happening in David's life, David knows, right, God has all of this in his hands. He has time in his hands. He has the beginning and the end declared. He nothing's going to happen that's going to mess up or destroy whatever it is that God's plan is, so I can trust him. I can trust him that his plan is going to stand until the end. Nothing is too hard for him. You can be confident like David is confident, and you can have peace like David has peace. You can turn to him today. You don't have to wait until a crisis. You, you can turn to him today and you can practice seeing everything in the, the light of the reality of the glory of God. You can see how he's been faithful to you in the past. You can meditate on his power and his sovereignty and his plan and his purposes. But that's not to say that um, even if you do these things, you'll never experience any doubt or, or you'll never have any of those dark thoughts creep in because we even see that in David. And so we'll, we'll get into the second half now. Look at this in verse seven. David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. In these verses, we start to touch on uh, a fear and a doubt that exists in David, which is natural. And and everyone uh, wonders the same thing at some point where you start thinking, what if God doesn't hear me? Or, okay, God is sovereign, he's everywhere at all times, and okay, he hears me, but, but what if he doesn't care? What if he hears me and he doesn't do anything? What if I don't really matter to him enough that he'd show up for me? Even though David knows that God has invited him to, uh, to seek him and have this relationship with him, where David admits, he goes, you have said, seek my face. God has invited me to come know him, and, and my heart is seeking you, but he still has this fear. He still has this doubt. You see it in verse 9, hide not your face from me. Don't turn from me in anger. Don't forsake me. Like, don't throw me away. That's, there, there's this deep worry that that's something that God might do. It's, it's something that David might experience. Where is it coming from? What's the source of that fear? Where, where does that doubt arise from? I think we see it in verse 11 where he says, teach me your way, O Lord. It's like, give me a level path. Teach me your way. Uh, Living the way that God gives us to live, following him, following his word, following his will, it's something David said, I need to learn to do that because I haven't been doing a great job at it. I know on my own I'm not doing a good enough job, and and that's the fear. If I don't do a good enough job, maybe you won't want me. You know, it's like I need to prove my worth to you in some way. We we get the itch where we feel like we have to do that, and and I love the honesty we get from David here because he's not um, he's not giving us the confidence of the first half and then leaving it there and just pretending that he's like this amazing person who has full confidence, full trust, uh, and, and, you know, he always does the right thing, and he's lived such a good life that it feels like, you know, there, he, he's owed this from God, or, or um, he's earned it because of how good he's been. That's not the situation David's in. It's not the situation anyone's in where we feel like, you know, we've done such a good job of doing the things God wants us to do that he's, he owes us his blessings, or we've somehow earned uh, his, his deliverance, um, the stuff we deserve, if we are really honest about it, the stuff we deserve is the stuff David's afraid of and the stuff we're afraid of, that we'd be rejected and turned away by God. Because we know the way that we've lived and we know the way that we've treated God. We know that we've rejected him. We haven't honored him. Uh, we haven't been faithful to him. We've been opportunistic with him and tried to use God. Uh, we've, we've ignored his word, and we've treated it as something that's not important to us. And w- what it does for us, it's kind of like projecting, you know, how people project when uh, they have their own insecurities and failures, and then they start seeing those things in other people. 
uh, like one of the classic things they say is, you know, if, if there's one person who's cheating in, uh, in, in a marriage or relationship, uh, they'll start accusing the other person of cheating out of the, this paranoia and this projection where, you know, we're, we're all deep down aware of like our failures and the stuff that we hate about ourselves and we, we wish we could change. We're, we're aware that they're not good things, but we don't want to just hate ourselves and so we start seeing it in other people and we get mad at them, but really we're, we're mad at ourselves and, and we're just kind of taking it out on them. At least that's how I understand it. Um, we've rejected God. Th that's what Romans 3 says. Romans 3 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We've rejected God. We've turned away from Him. We've, God tells us, you know, that this is, um, here, here's what I'm telling you is good, and here's what I'm telling you is evil, and here's what I'm telling you is the way you should go. And we go, God, I, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I'm going to choose my own way. Uh, even if you, you kind of have some sort of um, attitude towards God where you, you respect Him or you want to follow Him, there are going to be parts of following God that you hate and that you choose to say, God, no, I'm not going to follow you in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go my own way. Right? No one loves God fully with their heart. No one honors God completely. We've all walked away from him, and now we carry this fear, what if he walks away from me? Right? We take the stuff that we see in ourselves, the way that we've rejected God, and then we project it onto him and go, well, what if he does the same thing to me, and he'd be justified in it because of the way that we've treated him. And you're always going to get to this place where you're stuck in this fear of, you know, what if he leaves me? What if he abandons me? What if I'm not good enough? You're always going to get stuck in that fear and be unable to move past it if the way that you think about your relationship with God deals with questions like, like, what, what do I deserve? Like, what, what should I get from God? How should he treat me? Or, or even, like, if I were God, how would I treat me if, if uh, you know, I'd, I'd experience what it, I'd, how I'd acted towards God? Like, if you start thinking in those terms of, like, what do I deserve? What have I earned? Uh, what, what should happen? You're always going to get stuck in that place of fear. He might abandon me. He might not love me. He might walk away from me. The only way to get past that fear is to toss those questions away, and instead deal with the question, do I believe God is telling the truth or not? You look at God's, what God says, and you go, am I going to choose to trust this or not? In Luke 19, we, we meet a guy named Zacchaeus, who's a, a chief tax collector, and uh, tax collectors are reviled in Jewish culture at this time for two reasons. Um, one, because in collecting their taxes, sometimes they're dishonest and they say more is owed than is actually owed and they use that to fill their pockets and they get rich and they're stealing from people, which is lame, no one likes that. But that's not the main reason that people hate the tax collectors. Their biggest crime is, you know, the, uh, the, the Jews right now are living under the rule of the Roman Empire 
and under the rule of the Roman Empire, they are occupied by the Roman military. Militaries are expensive, and they're funded by taxes. And the tax collectors are not Romans, they're other Jewish people. And so tax collectors are seen as these uh, greedy, self-serving traitors who sold out their own people to side with the Romans who are oppressing them. And so that's why they're hated. And they're not, like, doing the right thing. You know, it's not like a, a good moral choice to choose the, the tax collector career. Um, but this guy, Zacchaeus, he approaches Jesus. And people get upset with Jesus that he doesn't turn him away. Because that's what they would have done. And that's what they do towards tax collectors. But it's not what Jesus does. And Jesus says this, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his purpose, that's his mission, to seek and to save the lost. The God of the Bible, when you read the Bible and God reveals himself to you, what you find is this is a God of love, this is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of justice. And Jesus tells us in his own words, he came to seek and to save the lost. He's here for sinners. He's here for people who've turned their backs on God. His mission is to find those people, to, to lift them up and to bring them back to God's embrace. That's what he's here for. You know how I said in, in like our tunnel vision, we make our problems really big and we make our God really small. Some of you, what you might be doing is you are making your anxiety about whether God loves you or not or will accept you or not, you're making your anxiety about God bigger than God, bigger than his grace and bigger than the cross of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus has done. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus went to the cross to stand in the place of sinners and the justice of God is poured out on Jesus so that the mercy of God could be unleashed and given to you. Look at what he's done and decide, is, is Jesus a liar? Or is he trustworthy? Am I going to trust what he said? It doesn't have to make sense to you. How could Jesus love me? How could he do this great thing for me? What have I done to deserve this? It doesn't have to make sense to you because you don't deserve it. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be mercy. All you have to do is decide, can I trust him? Jesus really went to the cross. He really did it. He really died in the place of sinners. He really rose from the grave and because Jesus has done this great thing, there really is forgiveness for you. There's mercy and love and reconciliation and healing and salvation for you in Jesus. And I know it's hard to let go of those fears, but it starts to get easier when the decision is whether you're going to trust Jesus or not, not whether you're going to think, am I good enough or not? Do I deserve it or not? 
you have to move past that and, and decide, am I going to trust him? Am I going to believe him? Am I going to trust he's really that good? God has brought you through every danger, toil, and snare in your life to bring you where you are today in your life. Like all the things that you've experienced and all the things that you've lived through, he's brought you through all of them to where you are in your life and he's brought you to be here today to hear the good news about Jesus. If you listen to him, if you trust him, if you, if you don't think that he is a liar or that he's deceiving or that somehow you are excluded from the vast promises that he gives, even though you struggle with your doubts and may still feel the, the tinge of this fear at times, you can join David in having this peace and having this confidence and saying with him what we find in verses 13 and 14. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. we need to understand not only how good God is, but how powerful God is. That there is no enemy he can't defeat. There's nothing that is going to destroy the plans that he has. There's nothing that's going to destroy the work that he's doing. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death. And Jesus can defeat you too. He can defeat the stubbornness in your heart. He can defeat your doubts, your anxieties, and your fears. Those things are not too big for God to handle. Don't get tunnel vision. Don't make your problems bigger than they really are. Look and see your life and your circumstances and your purpose, everything in the light of the reality of who God is, what he's able to do, what he's done in Jesus, the promises that he's given. When you can do that, you are going to have so much more peace in your life. You can be so much more rested and so much more confident when you decide to trust leaving things in God's hands like, do the best that you can, do everything that you're able to do and be as faithful as you can be, but leave the outcomes to God and just trust. I know he's good. I know nothing can destroy his plan, nothing can destroy his work. And I know what Jesus has done for me. You can have peace and you can know that you will see God's goodness again. All you have to do is, is wait for him. Let me pray for us.